Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by LexisNexis. Because the law is everywhere, at the heart of our lives and our discussions, this series brought to you by LexisNexis and guests will cover current issues that impact us daily. Thank you for tuning into this podcast about Ontario coroner's inquests where mental health is an issue. I am joined today by the co-authors of three chapters about this topic in a new release by LexisNexis entitled Law and Mental Health in Canada, Cases and Materials, which will be available both in digital format and in print in just a few weeks. With me today are Anita Segetti and Jennifer Chambers. Anita is one of the general editors of the new book and a lawyer in Toronto who specializes in mental health justice. She's represented the Empowerment Council and many inquests concerning the death of people with lived experience of mental health issues. Jennifer is the executive director of the Empowerment Council, which is a peer-run nonprofit that advocates for the rights of people with lived experience of mental health and or substance use issues. Jennifer has facilitated standing for the Empowerment Council and its forerunners as a party in over a dozen coroner's inquests into deaths of persons in crisis killed by police and in psychiatric facilities and jails over the last 25 years. Also with us today is another contributing author to this volume, Sarah Rankin, whose chapter is about the dangerous offender and long-term offender designations and mental health and treatment in that context. Sarah will be moderating today's discussion. Over to you, Sarah. Thank you. Anita, I'm going to start today by asking you, why did you want to include chapters on inquests in this book? There's no book out there just about Ontario coroner's inquests. I'm also not aware of anything written on the feedback loop between the real world and inquests. In the Law and Disability volume that LexisNexis published a couple of years ago, there are two really strong chapters on mental health-related inquests in Manitoba. So much work has been done in Ontario where mental health issues are central to inquests that I wanted to document that history. But also, if a lawyer is retained on an inquest, they have very few existing resources to guide them. It is likely to be their first time and maybe the only time that they'll participate in an inquest. Our book gives them basic tools to start and provides all the major cases that relate to the core issues inquests engage. Also, as you know, uh, because you were a law student still in school when we met and you worked with me on some very high profile inquests, law students may have opportunities to work on these files. And when they do, this book will help orient them to the process, which is unique and not widely understood otherwise. Hmm. Jennifer, maybe you can tell us a bit about the Empowerment Council. The Empowerment Council is led by psychiatric survivors, also called people with lived experience, and people who identify as having had addiction issues. But our mandate is systemic advocacy, so advocacy on the policy level. We only have two and a half staff positions, so we try to concentrate our work in a way that can have the most impact. The Empowerment Council and its forerunner, the Queen Street Patients Council, have been working on changing the police for about 25 years, mostly in Toronto, a bit in surrounding areas. There's been progress made and there's also been backsliding. But as with all advocacy, it's never really done. And Jennifer, why did you agree to co-author these chapters for this particular textbook and for its readers who are law students and new lawyers? Uh, Why is it important for law students and new lawyers to learn about the ways in which your organization has participated in inquests and how this has helped your members? 
that most lawyers don't know how to participate in inquests, and even fewer public interest groups understand them. Yet they can be a very important means of understanding why a person's died and how to prevent a death like that from happening again. So inquests have a power of inquiry that we don't have on our own. And although the recommendations made at inquests don't have teeth in the sense the coroner can enforce them, any organization that cares about its reputation has to pay attention to them or they could risk public condemnation for causing a similar death. So they can be an important means of change, even life-saving change. And the participation of a public interest group can make for a more meaningful and productive inquest, especially if it's composed of the people who share potential risk with the person who died. Very high motivation. So far, we're the only psychiatric survivor organization in Canada doing this kind of systemic advocacy to a degree that we can build a substantial body of work. And then on a very practical level, I mentioned that our organization is small. Inquests are intensive. So for our legal team, it's often every day for weeks in court, a preparation each night. And then the night before closing submissions are made, the juries often are made to the jury. There's often a lot of back and forth between different parties till the wee hours. But what recommendations you can jointly support with other parties? Because the more parties that agree on a recommendation, the more likely it is the jury will accept them. But I can't take that much time away from my other work. So our legal team sends daily reports to me on what's happening and asks for any input on questions to ask witnesses and recommendations that we might want from them. Our legal counsel, most often Anita, also compiles other recommendations to consider what arises when questioning witnesses. So we temporarily expand the capacity of our organization through our legal team at inquests. And the Empowerment Council has actually been quite successful in getting the jury to accept the recommendations that our lawyers made throughout the inquest and in closing, and that our witness, usually me, has explained to the jury. I think it, it helps that we're the only party there whose only interest is to stop more people from dying. We're not trying to avoid getting sued. We're not gathering information for a lawsuit. We're not protecting our reputation. So we talk about what's happened and what could happen in a down-to-earth way for the jury. We make practical observations like the need for sufficient funding for crisis services that people want to use rather than forcing people to use things they don't want to use and the need to check on whether training is actually translating into how police are treating people on the street or hospital workers, how they're treating people on the units. These are just a few ways that inquests have been able to promote changes that help our members. So there are three full chapters in this book devoted to Ontario coroner's inquests. The first explores Ontario coroner's inquests generally, and I want to talk a bit about that introduction first. Anita, what is a coroner's inquest in Ontario? A coroner's inquest examines the circumstances of a death. There are mandatory inquests, such as when someone dies in police custody, which includes all the police shooting inquests. And then there are discretionary inquests. The coroner may call to examine a systemic issue. The function of the inquest is to make findings of fact about the death to determine what happened. There's also a preventative aspect in recommendations for going forward to prevent future such deaths. The coroner's motto, which is one of my favorite things about um, these inquests, the coroner's motto is, we speak for the dead to protect the living. The inquest findings cannot lay blame or find fault with any party. And what does an inquest look like? How does it proceed? Inquest proceeding happens in a court, although these days uh, often uh, virtually usually presided over by a doctor. Recently, 
in Ontario, we've changed uh, Coroner's Act to allow lawyers to preside over some inquests. There is a jury who will decide the matter and render a verdict. The jury can ask questions throughout the proceeding, which can be really interesting, give you some insight into what the jury's thinking and wondering about. The jury must determine how and when the death occurred. They have to answer five questions. Who died? When? Where? How? And by what means? They do not have to, but may make recommendations arising out of the inquest. Any recommendation that they do choose to make must be practical and geared toward preventing future death in similar circumstances. And who are the parties to an inquest? There are two kinds of parties to inquests, those with private standing and those who meet the test for standing under the public interest standing test. Private standing parties have to have a direct connection to the deceased or to the circumstances of the death. The private standing parties are usually family and then anyone whose conduct may become the subject of censure or criticism. The public interest standing test requires that the group applying for standing have, first of all, a direct interest in the inquest, and secondly, a unique perspective and special expertise in the issues in the inquest. Public interest interveners are seen as the change makers, looking for broad recommendations for improving systemic issues that may have contributed to the death. Private interest parties involved with the death are generally trying to defend their reputation or maintain the status quo, resisting systemic changes, which may imply there's room for improvement in their existing practices. The law of standing and the chief coroner's approach to standing has evolved over the last 20 years. Back even as late as the 1990s, you had to be virtually identically situated to the deceased to obtain standing. The coroner's office has undergone a massive transformation to the point that they now proactively reach out to various advocacy groups and invite groups such as the Empowerment Council to participate. Who defines the scope of an inquest and why does that matter? That's a good question. Um, the contest is often between, you know, a, a narrow and a broad scope. So um, scopes can be narrow or broad. Um, and it depends how you define the scope of the inquest really depends on what is meant by the circumstances of the death that the inquest is mandated to look into. In police shooting uh, death inquest, for example, police would likely prefer to keep the scope of the inquest to the minutes around the incident and the death. Or they may want to look at the mental health history of the individual in an effort to show a particular history of dangerousness or perceived need for involuntary hospitalization or forced treatment. Um, they, you know, police may have an interest in focusing the scope to include, for example, that the person who was shot and killed had been previously detained or forcibly treated. Uh, and in the past, we've seen, for example, police services trying to argue that the individual should have been detained or treated against their will at the time that they were in crisis and police killed them. The public interest interveners are pushing to broaden the scope and to shift the scope. Um, so, uh, in a, for example, in a police shooting inquest, 
the public interest interveners, such as the Empowerment Council, uh, wants to and has been successful at getting the scope to include things like the training that police have, what alternative crisis responses were or not uh, available, alternatives to uh, lethal force, um, and all those kinds of things. And I'll just add that um, generally the coroner tries to keep the scope narrow and the public interest groups work to show how aspects of the deaths that occurred connect to broader issues. Um, the scope of the inquest is often controversial because sometimes the evidence that there's an issue isn't just in one death, but in a pattern of deaths. So, for instance, the special vulnerability of being black and in crisis in an encounter with police might not be obvious one time, but when you see that this is who's dying more than anyone else, then we argue it needs to be addressed. And Jennifer, what recommendations might parties be trying to get a jury to make and why? So one of the things that survivor groups want to do is defend against police or families seeking recommendations to change mental health legislation so people are more easily forced to use services they don't want. It's a kind of victim blaming that happens at inquests when the people who are members of the group uh, resembling the person killed are not at the inquest. So instead, we suggest that funding go to services that people do want that are inadequately funded or in some cases do not exist in a particular part of the world but have been proven to be successful elsewhere, which makes much more sense, um, supplying the help that people want rather than forcing them to use what they don't want. And some examples of self-identified needs, we saw it include adequate and inclusive housing, peer run alternatives, consent-based crisis services. The inquest recommendations have been actually quite helpful in increasing funding to some of these options. So the general idea is to shift the focus away from coercion and the use of force whether it's by police or within the mental health system, toward consent-based options being available. Police can use inquest recommendations from our weapons, such as conducted energy weapons, also called tasers, and we generally do our best to restrict their use. So some technology, both we and the police, have been leery of at first, like body-worn cameras, but now both see as a possible new tool for police accountability. And what are some of the goals a survivor organization would have at an inquest? Uh, well, one of the things we try to do is humanize the person who died and other psychiatric survivors that the inquest recommendations might affect. Uh, so we address some of the relevant stereotypes about people in crisis or who have mental health issues and or uh, such as a presumption of dangerousness or a lack of capacity to make decisions. We educate the jury and the coroner about risks of forced drugging and detention and about less coercive and generally more effective alternatives. And we describe how to de-escalate someone experiencing a crisis in a trauma-informed way. And we provide information and analysis of what and how the police teach. We reviewed in between inquests, we're involved in reviewing uh, the training and education that the police do, which is something we've achieved because of inquests. Uh, we advocate specifically for the following of most police-involved inquests, community-based mobile crisis intervention with significant representation of peers on staff and in governance, and which is also reflective of the community served in terms of race, indigeneity, local cultures, um, mandatory training of police by survivors geared to de-escalation, and direct involvement of survivors in policy and practices through all level levels of decision-making, whether it's policing, or hospitals or other institutional settings. 
I want to talk next about how you accomplish these goals. Anita, what are some of the strategic considerations in representing a psychiatric survivor organization at a coroner's inquest? So just thinking about the the lawyering practice aspect of representing an organization like the Empowerment Council, for example, um, it's very important, although, you know, kind of uh, difficult to do, but it is actually important to come to the inquest with a a provisional list of recommendations that we want to get from the jury. And it's going to be provisional because obviously we haven't heard the evidence yet. We have a brief but we haven't heard or tested the evidence. Nonetheless, you come to the inquest with you know, a, a wish list of recommendations that at the end of the day, we want the jury to make. And then expand on these as we learn more at the inquest about what happened and why. Um, obviously, w- we also need to get the facts into evidence to support any recommendation that we want the jury to make at the end of the inquest. And Although this sounds really self-evident, it's it's quite easy to forget about because um, if you put a recommendation to a witness and they adopt it, uh, you think, well, there you go. There's an evidentiary basis for the jury to make that recommendation, but that, it's really not obviously there. You need to get some actual evidence so the jury can um, base that recommendation on on what they've heard as facts and evidence. So you've got to get that evidence out of the witnesses from policing and other witnesses called by the coroner and and others. Uh, You can also uh, very effectively, and this, this I think, um, often a turning point in the inquest I've participated in, uh, you can put your own witness on the stand. And we'll sometimes have our own experts in different areas uh, and different inquests. And we'll, we'll also very often, pretty much all of the time, when the Empowerment Council participate, uh, participates ask uh, that Jennifer be allowed to testify and educate the jury uh, about a lot of the things that we want them to think about, make recommendations around. So you can also do what I've mentioned, which is you know come with a stack of previous inquest jury's recommendations that pertain, and uh, from those other inquests, put the recommendations to the various witnesses. You can put them to institutional witnesses and say your organization was directed to do such and such some number of years ago by the jury in this other related inquest. Have you done this or have you not done it? And if not, why not in terms of implementing prior recommendations? Um, So, you know, it is important to probe, for example, policing witnesses about why previous recommendations have not been implemented if you know that that's the case. Um, and another sort of uh, lawyering strategic uh, aspect of, of coroner's inquest is uh, you got to play nice in the sandbox. Uh, you've got to be able to work collaboratively with the other lawyers. It's not an adversarial process in the sense that we're used to as um, defense lawyers or criminal trials. You really do have to um, row in the same direction. and. Uh, if you don't work collaboratively and the lawyers aren't getting along and if we don't all keep our eyes on the ball in terms of getting those reasonable and practical recommendations from a jury, uh, you know, there's a real risk that the inquest will be derailed and it won't have the positive outcome that I think uh, is what we're all hoping for otherwise. And, and finally, closing submissions to a jury 
you know, same as with a, with a trial, uh, can be incredibly important and impactful. And, uh, you want to make the most of that limited amount of time that you'll have to make closing submissions. They're almost always time limited, not normally more than a half an hour. And you want to really make sure you get bang for your buck there because you can, you can really get it a jury in, in, in your closing. So those are just some practical tips. I'm trying to add an off the cuff comment to the last thing that Anita said. Uh, we're talking about putting together an understanding of the story of what happened to the person who died that the jury and hopefully the public can connect with uh, is really the thing that's most likely to lead to actual change. Um, people are really motivated and moved by what happened to the person who died and by concern for what's going to happen to people in the future. Thanks for that. We've been talking about what a coroner's inquest looks like in Ontario. I want to move to discussing the other two inquest chapters in the book. The first of those chapters is about people killed in people in crisis, killed by police. Jennifer, can you explain some of the history and context for your involvement in these policing inquests? I facilitated standing at inquest primarily for two organizations, um, both peer-run systemic advocacy organizations, the Queen Street Patients Council and the Empowerment Council, as we discussed in the book. Um, so doing this for about 25 years. Uh, it took a while before coroners trusted that we were credible and practical participants, that we were not going to use the inquest to grandstand on matters that weren't related to the facts of the inquest. Uh, we had to make a general agreement um, at the start of an inquest typically not to expand the scope of the inquest, but at the same time we can push. Uh, so we can push to include witnesses who can present evidence that we will argue is within the scope, uh, such as racism. Well, inquests recommendations don't have the force of law, uh, a lot depends on how much public outcry and inquest stirs up and whether one of the parties to whom the recommendations are directed is likely to end up in inquest court with a witness like us pointing out that if they'd followed the recommendations in the last inquest, the person would not be dead. So as a result of their repeated uh, requirement of a period inquest, the Toronto Police Service responds to inquest recommendations, especially in cases that get a lot of publicity. I'm not saying they don't also care, um, some do, but it's also a motivating factor um, what reputation people have. So probably the most important recommendation we ever got at an inquest in an ongoing way was for the creation of standing bodies that advise the Toronto Police Services Board on mental health and addiction and anti-racism on an ongoing basis. So those panels are where we can state whether the recommendations are implemented in a meaningful way, which is a critical part of whether they are going to make a difference. So, for example, the Mental Health and Addiction Advisory Panel and the Anti-Racism Advisory have advocated for demographic information to be kept on the use of force. We've also stated the need to do a cross-sectional analysis of that deadly intersection of force being in crisis and being Black. Some of this data is now available in a public portal. Um, some of it's going to be analyzed and put up within the next year. Uh, transparency allows for accountability. So we, we know when someone's killed, but we also want to ask them to track the force that we don't see, which isn't necessarily encrusted. Uh, so panels can advocate in this area as well. 
Anita, the last of the chapters on inquests in the book focuses on institutional deaths of people with lived experience of mental health issues in jails and psychiatric facilities. Tell us about the kinds of issues these inquests tend to raise. Coroner's inquests play a vital role in the investigation of deaths that occur when people are confined in an institutional setting. By their very nature, institutions that detain people are not open to public scrutiny, and the people within them cannot choose to leave when conditions are unsafe or when critical needs are not met. Investigations that are internal to the institution or conducted by a similar institution or by a collective body of such facilities or their governing body all have a clear conflict of interest. Public interest intervention, therefore, takes on a heightened importance in institutional deaths of individuals with serious mental health issues. The participation of an organization of people with lived experience of mental health issues, like the Empowerment Council, has been instrumental in obtaining very significant recommendations from inquest juries looking at suicide or use of restraint causing death in both psychiatric hospitals and in correctional facilities. In chapter 18 of our new book, we focus on the participation of the Empowerment Council as a party in several inquests where people who had mental health issues died in mechanical restraints or took their own life within an institution. And we don't have time today to to go through all of them. And and perhaps an idea for future podcasts is to have a, a a more uh, exhaustive look at some of the inquests, both on the policing front and the institutional deaths side. Um, But I'll flag one or two of the mechanical restrained deaths that have been really important. The inquest into the death of Jeffrey James, uh, who died in 2005, and I think the inquest didn't happen until about 2008, But the coroner's inquest into the death of Jeffrey James was a really pivotal moment in in Ontario in terms of the use of physical or mechanical restraints in psychiatric institutions. Jeffrey James was a 34-year-old Black man who died at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health after more than five days in physical, also known as mechanical restraints. Another man... uh, in CAMH also died in restraints in the same approximate time period, although his death was not inquested. The reason no inquest was held into the earlier restraint-related death was that such inquests were not mandatory until the Coroner's Act was ultimately amended to require them. So the coroner uh, chose, to their credit, uh, to call as a discretionary inquest the inquest into the restraint-related death of Jeffrey James. Um, But coming out of James, there were more than 80, at least, recommendations that came out of James. And one of those recommendations was for this legislative change that was made, was implemented subsequent to the James inquest as a direct result of the Empowerment Council's participation in the inquest and the jury's adoption of the recommendations in this regard that the Empowerment Council proposed. And so now all Uh, deaths in physical or mechanical restraints in psychiatric hospitals are mandatorily inquested. I'll I'll take a minute. Um, I know both Jennifer and I feel very strongly uh, about the emotionally extremely difficult inquest into the death of Nicolaus Bellos, 
It's pronounced Bellos, but if you're looking for it, it's spelled M-P-E-L-O-S. The Bellos inquest um, similarly looked at the death of a 65-year-old man in physical restraints in the emergency department of a Toronto General Hospital. Not the Toronto General Hospital, but a a general hospital and their uh, emergency room in Toronto. Um, He came in voluntarily. He felt that his meds were out of whack and he wasn't feeling well. So he called 911 and police came to pick him up, safely delivered him to the hospital. Um, And then, you know, you can read about it in our book, but a a whole series of misunderstandings, miscommunications and misapprehensions, largely based on, on various implicit and other biases and stereotypes sort of took a hold of his course in the hospital. He ended up in, in physical restraints several times. Uh, he was perceived to be aggressive and assaultive when in fact, as it turned out, um, it was not the symptoms of his schizophrenia that were worsening. It was not that he was under-medicated. Uh, our expert at the the inquest into his death told us he was uh, most likely suffering from hospital-induced delirium and everything that was being done to him was making that worse. He died uh, in his, I think, third application of physical restraint. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, the ultimate horse horror, um, in, in his death is that in the end, nobody even noticed that this man had died for many hours after the fact. It was a very difficult case that we look closely at in the book. So also on the, uh, on the institutional side, um, you know, I've, I've participated in, in a lot of, um, suicides in secure psychiatric facilities and in prisons, uh, most often suicides by hanging. In the book, we we delve um, into the Ashley Smith inquest, and I, I, I won't talk about that. There's a lot of it in the book. I think um, most listeners will be familiar with at least the facts of Ashley Smith's tragic death. Uh, but I'll take a minute to talk about G.A., who's identified as uh, by his initials only, a young person, just 17, when he hanged himself in the secure detention wing uh, of a youth secure detention and treatment center in Toronto known as Syllabs in May of 2008. He was waiting uh, for an assessment report uh, to be delivered of his criminal responsibility in relation to having assaulted his sister. I believe he, he either slapped or punched his sister. Um, GA had been clear from his first court appearance that he was pleading guilty to the offenses charged. He wanted to plead guilty. He acknowledged assaulting his sister and he wanted to proceed to sentencing every time that he was before the court. Um, again, a whole series of misapprehensions, misunderstandings, miscommunications, a whole ton of serious confusion among all the justice system participants including things like, uh, you know, he was appointed an amicus curiae, a friend of the court, but he was still self-representing. He was not brought up from the cells when there were discussions about the delays in getting this assessment. Um, and at the end of the day, the the delay itself got to him. Uh, the ensuing events were never consistent with his clear instructions uh, that he was giving as a young person and, and um, the law that pertained to a situation was not well understood by anyone involved. Uh, and in the end, um, 
after one of his court appearances, after dinner in the institution, he uh, he took his own life. It was a very, very difficult inquest and an incredibly tragic, totally um, preventable death. Um, so those are just some of the institutional um, inquests that uh, we, we um, have a closer look at in the book. Thank you. Thank you both for joining me to talk about the forthcoming book and the important work which has informed these chapters. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you both. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs>